Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents ACA Media. I am Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. And we're uh, coming to you with power in our houses, which is not the state of things over the past 48 hours. Both of us in two, you know, very far away, different states. Uh, it's Yay, summertime. electricity! Summer storm time in the U.S. And, and we've had power outages the last 48 hours, uh, both of us. So, How'd you, Did you make it through? I did, and I had sort of a fun combination of modern and old-fashioned technologies because... Uh, did you do a Magic Lantern show? I didn't. That would have been even better. But I listened to the Cubs on the radio, like oh, old-fashioned okay. way, except for the fact I was using my phone, you know, the data stream, um, and as the battery ticked down to single digits. But listening, you know, in the pitch black darkness, listening to the Cubs on the radio, it felt kind of old-timey, besides the phone part. It's not quite an old tube radio, but... No. Still has its charms. And the Cubs did lose, so that also felt very well, old-timey. Well, that's old-timey, too. As well, yeah. We then, well, then the other part of that is, as I mentioned, my phone was, was ticking down the battery. You know, we'd been getting tornado, or not tornado, excuse me, thunderstorm watches and warnings all day, and it didn't occur to me to charge my phone up. And that's a lesson learned. You know, when you start getting those watches, get your phone charged up, because you might need it to keep yourself entertained for the rest of the night. You may indeed. A summer lesson out there, a tip from ACA Media. We have a pretty great episode here, which would be honestly really, really good listening if you're sitting in the dark, waiting for the power to come back on, cherishing those last few uh, electrons that are hiding in your phone. Exactly. Yes. That's where, you know, ACA Media is there for you in all of your emergency power situations. Exactly. And we do have some really great stuff for you. Another first, I believe, for ACA Media, we have a, we're going to do a two-part segment. Uh, the first part this episode, you'll get to hear part two in the next episode. This is coming to you courtesy of one of our producers, Stephanie Brown. And this is a really incredible segment um, and makes me you know, even more excited to hear part two as well. It's crazy good. Super, super great content, really well produced. Don't want to say too much about it because... Just want people to give it a listen. Right. And then we'll follow that up with an interview that I did with Phelan Parker. He has an article in the uh, spring issue of Cinema Journal about uh, the video games as art debate that was uh, kind of circulated around the figure of Roger Ebert. So I have a chat with him and we'll hear that after Stephanie's segment. All right. Let's turn things over to her uh, incredibly able hands. In the second to last episode of HBO's Girls, the main character, Hannah, played by Lena Dunham, finds herself at a job interview for a college teaching job in upstate New York. So yeah, I'm just kind of amazed to be at this interview. I mean, to me, professors have always been people with, you know, like MFAs and country houses, and possibly a neck goiter. Needless to say, as graduate students about to embark on a job market we had heard some fairly horrifying things about, my roommate and I watched this scene with what I can only describe as bemused outrage. Okay, so let's talk logistics. Um, 100 students, groups of 25, doing seminars, then a little one-on-one -on -one time, cozy time I like to call it, and you do it. Can you show these students the real guts and meat of the internet? What it's really for? Yes, I can. I am 100% the right person to show them the internet. 
Even more frustrating, Hannah gets a call later that day as she's on the train back to New York City that she has indeed gotten the job. Hello? Hi, Hannah. I just wanted to let you know that I have spoken with my colleagues. We would like to offer you the position. Oh! Oh my god, wow. I mean, I must have been very impressive. That was, that was so fast. We connected hardcore. A piece of pop culture that spoke a little more closely to our actual experience of the job market was a satirical article posted on the website McSweeney's last year called Southeastern Middle Still University Hiring Visiting Assistant Adjunct Just Because They Heard You're on the Market. Jennifer Mormon, who I'm going to interview in this segment, actually brought up as well. The job ad reads, We seek a candidate who is a field researcher first and a teacher second to teach six courses per semester, including a minimum of five individual preparations each semester. Uh, This position is open until we find a tenured faculty member who desires a spousal hire. It goes on to say, In addition to completing the online application, please send the following via expedited snail mail, a cover letter, curriculum vita, copies of unofficial transcripts, copies of official transcripts, a blood sample, two baby teeth, Ten copies of most recent book, signed, Unicorn Jerky, and seven letters of recommendation. Then a total of six documents are required to complete the online application. Our application platform allows the attachment of five documents. The maximum size for each document is medium. It's so close to reality that it's, you know, hardly even satire. As you may have guessed, today we're going to talk about the often frustrating experience of being on the academic job market. On today's first of our two-part job market segment, we're going to vent, air frustrations, and commiserate about the labor of finding a job. For this segment, I solicited survey responses from folks with experiences on the job market as either a job candidate or a committee member. I summarize those responses here and combine them with interviews with academics who have been open in their discussions of their own job market experience on social media, who are doing research on the job market, and who are doing work within SEMS and more broadly to make the job market more bearable, and who are tackling the larger issues of academic precarity. In the next segment, we'll talk more in depth about advice for job seekers and the larger solutions to structural inequality of the job market that we talk about today. There are two pieces of advice I picked out of the survey responses that highlight the theme of this segment. Sharing failure is always cathartic. It's not advice per se, but it it helps junior scholars realize they're not alone in their dozens and dozens of applications that resulted in only a few Skype calls. I think folks on the job market need their experiences normalized, practically and emotionally. They need to know that it's awful for everyone, that they aren't alone in this experience, and they aren't alone when they have doubts. Everyone we talked to had a unique perspective on the job market, and so I'm going to introduce each of our interviewees through those stories. First, Christine Becker talked to Lori Morimoto, an independent fan studies scholar who frequently writes about her experience with the job market on Twitter, alongside her prolific analyses of media, fandom, and audience. I do actually come with my own sort of unusual set of circumstances that make me a different kind of candidate than most early career researchers. I'm middle-aged, I'm a mother of two, and I'm married to somebody with cerebral palsy who actually supports our family, but he relies on accessible transportation for employment. And so where we live right now, we have that. Uh, It's not a guarantee were we to pick up and move somewhere else. My age is another, uh, and people say, yeah, but you know, legally we can't consider that. But with the current job market, you know, if one position is getting over 100 applications, who's going to know if age was the thing that got my CV into the other pile? I have a BA from 1988. 
which is older than a lot of the people who are applying for the jobs. And so that's a bit of a frustration. You know, personally, I think it's interesting experience to bring to research, but a lot of people want freshly minted and new, and I can understand that. Next, I talked to Mark Stewart, an international television and fan studies scholar who is similarly open in his sharing of job experiences on Twitter. I graduated from my PhD in 2015 uh, from the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Uh, I did a one-year research postdoc for 12 months after that. And for the last two years, I've been a visiting assistant professor of television and cross-media culture at the University of Amsterdam. But I'm at the point where that two-year contract is coming to an end. Uh, So I've been on the market once again for the last uh, probably 12 months now. So this is effectively my third time on the job market. If you're applying globally, there are sort of a lot of different things which need to be taken into a, into account. My, my initial set of applications were going mostly to the US, and so I prepared the sort of standard materials. When applying to a job in the UK, almost none of those are any use to you because they tend to have a form which you need to fill in. It's a completely different process to go through. So understanding those kind of distinctions, for for me, applying globally is something which perhaps gives me a little more flexibility in terms of the jobs that I can apply for. But the flip side of that is that there is a significant amount of work involved. Jennifer Mormon is not only open about her experiences on the job market as the Women's Caucus junior faculty representative, she's actually helped spearhead several efforts within the Women's Caucus over the past three years to tackle issues of academic precarity, particularly as they relate to the marginalization of women, people of color, and people with disabilities. In 2016, she put together a workshop at SDMS with Emily Carmen, Alison Hoffman-Hahn, and Laura Westrup called The Adjunct Crisis that ended up inspiring a special issue of the Cinema Journal teaching dossier on precarious labor that I'm going to link to in the show notes. At this year's SDMS, she also sat on an informal panel called Gendered Realities in Today's Early Career Environments that led to a set of proposals and best practices surrounding academic labor that is currently being circulated among SIGs and that we'll talk about much more detail in part two. I completed my PhD at UCLA in 2014 in cinema and media studies. Uh, So I've been on the market for four years. And especially over the last couple of years, I've started to think more and more about the systemic problems. I'm currently in a visiting assistant professorship at Loyola Marymount University in the Women's and Gender Studies program. I just finished my second year there. They did invite me back for a third, but that's the last possible year. Usually two years is the maximum for a visiting position. So before that, I spent two years uh, just adjuncting. And I also adjuncted for a number of years while I was putting myself through grad school. Finally, I talked to two scholars outside of media and cinema studies, Yannick Ucherko and Diane Elliott, who are currently conducting a survey and interviews on the experience of being an adjunct faculty member while on the job market that they would love for you to take, which I will also link to in the show notes. Hi, I'm Jana Kucherko. So I'm currently a postdoc at the Institute of Human Development and Social Change at NYU, and I'm working with Dr. Lisa Genetian at the Bell Lab. Um, I'm trained as a development psychologist, and um, next month I'm thrilled to be starting as assistant professor of psychology at Brooklyn College. I was on job market for two years. The first year I applied while I was still getting my PhD and I applied locally in the tri-state area. I live in New York. I got a few interviews, didn't get a job. Um, Then I applied again this past year and I was able to land a tenure track job. Hi, I'm Diane Elliott. I'm an assistant professor at Kutztown State University. 
My area of expertise is education and specifically higher education. I graduated in 2010 and I didn't secure a tenure track position until 2016. Um, One of the challenges that I've had is I've always been very geographically bound because of my spouse and my, I have young children. And that is always a challenge for anyone, I think, who's on the job market. The first major frustration that folks brought up both in the interviews and in the surveys was the struggle to balance job applications with research, teaching, service, and personal responsibilities. Job applications to many felt like a second full-time job at times. Most agreed that the rest of their work necessarily suffered while they were applying or that they couldn't devote as much time to personalizing applications or doing the more intensive applications for jobs that they might have otherwise applied for. There was an overall tension in many survey responses between deciding whether to spend more time on actual job applications or to spend that time making yourself look better on an application through publications and research. One survey response put it this way. In my experience, it's more or less impossible to effectively balance being on the job market with anything else, particularly if you're a grad student on the market for the first year. Of course, you have to somehow, but... Either you'll not be able to teach or do research as effectively, or you'll have to make some compromises on tailoring your letters or doing other job market labor. One thing or another will suffer to some extent. Yana, Diane, Lori, and Jennifer all had worked as adjuncts for varying lengths of time and all noted the strain of trying to scrape together a living wage adjuncting while also being on the job market. You know, my first two years after finishing my PhD, I was teaching six classes per semester, um, three different campuses, uh, while on the market full time. So, you know, that's like 80 plus hours a week. I'm only getting paid for the hours that I'm in the classroom, plus at three of the universities, two hours a week per class for office hours. Anything else I did was unpaid labor. So obviously we are sort of de-incentivized to put a lot of effort into our teaching, you know, in general. They also noted the frequent denigration of their work as adjuncts and the general denigration of teaching compared to research as a qualification for securing tenure track work. You know, it's sort of dismissed as positions that are held by people who aren't as legitimate as those who hold tenure line positions. And uh, Maria Maisto, the president of the new faculty majority, believes this type of labor is undervalued precisely because it's been so closely aligned with women's work, Kay Steiger notes that 61% of adjunct faculty are women. By way of comparison, 59% of tenured faculty are men. Now that's a little closer to equal, but there is a historical precedent for the inequality, which continues to arguably inform perceptions of adjuncting as women's work. Lori actually ended up stepping back from teaching to devote more time to writing and research projects. And my other uh, frustration has to come with having adjuncted at a community college. I had some very good experiences there. Um, I adjuncted there for three and a half years in film studies. Ultimately, I just decided that it was taking more than I was getting from it. Uh, And so I decided to leave and concentrate 100% on research and writing. Diane also noted the difference between applying for jobs as a grad student and applying once you've already graduated. And I know it might not feel this way as a graduate student, but my sense is that as a graduate student, you're sort of insulated and protected because when you're applying on the market, my sense, and and I've served on a few search committees, is that we're really looking at potential. I think once you cross that threshold and you've graduated, then suddenly the expectations are ramped up 
And suddenly it's, you know, have you published and where have you published and what kinds of grants have you secured? And for each year that you're out of the job market, those expectations, I think, increase. It was the unique experience of applying to jobs as an adjunct that led Diane and Yana to create their survey. Yana touched on her own experience as an adjunct in her explanation of the impetus for the survey and the project more generally. So I've been um, also adjuncting simultaneously as I was getting my PhD and then uh, during my postdoc and I sort of experienced the instability of adjuncting and, you know, just typical things like having my classes be canceled last minute. Um, just shuffling from campus to campus, and not having certainty that I'm going to be appointed next semester, um, not knowing where my paycheck's going to come from. The questions came organically through my conversations with Diane and our shared experiences. And so talking to other people on job market and other adjuncts and hearing their trajectories. Our research is done in collaboration with our third colleague, Khadija Diallo. This work is particularly important, as Jennifer noted, because increasingly adjunct labor is becoming the norm. The recent report by the American Association of University Professors revealed that adjuncts now comprise 76.4% of all U.S. faculty. Cinema Journal in focus on academic labor that between 95 and 2003, tenure track positions increased by only 5.7%, while part-time positions increased 41%. Um, and the number of full-time non-tenure track faculty increased by 39%. The long view is even more sobering between 76 and 2003. The number of non-tenure track faculty increased by 177%. Another major complaint I heard, particularly in the survey results, was the lack of communication and transparency throughout the job application process, especially when jobs either don't ever send official job rejections or send them out months to years later. Candidates understood why committees were reluctant to send rejections until their chosen candidate had accepted the offer, but many wondered why candidates couldn't at least be notified that they were out of the running, with the caveat that they could reach out to people in the future should the search require it. If you haven't made a shortlist, that's something that I would like to know at that point. And that just would allow me to sort of put that into a box of, right, I almost certainly haven't got that job. That's fine. That's not one I need to sort of keep in the back of my mind while I'm considering and I can move on. And that's where the Academic Job Wiki provides some of that relief in, a, in an informal capacity. A similar but related frustration was not knowing why you didn't get a job and so how to tweak your approach or your materials. And this is a much harder thing because I recognize that hiring committees are often dealing with easily upwards, upwards of 200 applications for some of these jobs. And so there are no position to give individual feedback about why people were not suitable for these jobs. But for some of them, especially for someone in my position, I feel like there may well have been times when the reason I missed the job was something that was purely practical. The fact that I'm a, an international scholar was something that the HR department decided they weren't willing to do. And knowing that I've missed based on a, a practical administrative reason like that would be very different than we don't think you are a good enough scholar or the match with what they decided they were looking for was not good enough. Mark also noted the coded ways job ads are sometimes written and the unwritten things committees want that aren't clearly communicated in the job ads. Yana similarly talked about a time when an ad was written to be an open call for area expertise only to find out after her interview that the committee had actually had a specific focus in mind. Which gets into our next topic. A third frustration was that candidates often feel like their time, labor, and anxiety isn't being taken seriously or being acknowledged by search committees or university administration. 
This was talked about with regards to the sometimes overwhelming amount of materials required for first rounds of some job applications, the Byzantine online job portals that ask for entire resumes to be retyped, or that ask for strange file sizes or strange file types. Many were also frustrated with job ads that ask for non-standard application documents, like shorter-than-average teaching statements or longer-than-average research statements, or for things like original syllabi, additional essays, or expensive official transcripts. You are intentionally or unintentionally creating a filter so that only the most privileged people can apply for this job. Because people who are overburdened with teaching and already underpaid do not have time for that. I would ask anyone listening who's on a hiring committee if they are honestly going to read all of the supplemental materials that they are requesting up front. And if they're not going to read everyone's, you know, research statements and teaching statements and diversity statements and research and teaching statements and all, you know, all the millions of other documents I've had to write over the last few years, then please don't ask us to waste time on them. Jennifer also noted that often hunting down references for the first round is a deterrent for many applicants who may have come across the job ad right before the deadline or who have letter writers who have failed to submit a letter on time. Many survey respondents also brought up the emotional labor of applications, precarity, and uncertain futures. Or as one person put it, the emotional labor of imagining a hundred different futures for you and your current or future family. Feelings of failure were also a constant source of emotional labor. As one survey respondent put it, You have to find a way to manage constant silence, rejection, and self-doubt. Which brings us to precarity, in which we'll build on some of what we talked about in our last episode. The changing nature of work in higher education is also, of course, putting an increased strain on job candidates both in terms of work required to keep up with higher and higher qualifications and in terms of managing hopelessness and desperation for a shrinking number of secure jobs. As Jennifer Mormon and the Women's Caucus have been arguing, this burden falls mostly on those who are already marginalized. Jennifer talked a lot about the increasing precarity in academia, how it affects those trying to find jobs, and how it puts the burden largely on women, people of color, and people with disabilities. So I found that according to the American Federation of Teachers, only 10% of all university faculty positions are held by underrepresented racial and ethnic groups, and of those, 73% are contingent. And the NWSA recognized the disproportionate impact of precarious employment and higher education on women and people of color in a statement arguing that silencing the scholarship of these individuals by having them shoulder the majority of instruction within institutions of higher education has limited their full entrance into the academy, creating a stratified system within the professoriate that mimics systems of oppression more broadly. This precarity starts in the process of getting a PhD in the first place, especially for those without outside support or who face any kind of hardship. People around me who had parental financial support or spousal support who, you know, were able to just focus on finishing their dissertation, not having to teach, people who had the the means are the ones who got jobs the most quickly and who advance. Of course, you know, statistically, women, people of color, and people with disabilities are more likely to have come from disadvantaged backgrounds in the first place or to kind of start out with less. Additionally, the increase in non-tenure track faculty, Jennifer noted, means that productivity and service burdens are increasing on tenure track faculty as they are asked to carry more and more of the departmental responsibilities. Further, because service responsibilities already fall mostly on women and faculty of color, an increasing reliance on non-tenure track faculty within departments also has a negative effect on these tenure track labor burdens. In light of these realities, Lori notes that we all need to be more realistic about giving advice to job candidates and talking about the job market. But every time, every year, there's a workshop or a roundtable on the job market. 
And I just want to like burst in there, you know, throw the doors open and, and start yelling about how it's, it's a crapshoot. That's what it is. It's institutionalized gambling. You put your money in the machine and, you know, you put your money in, you hit the button, the things go around and I got nothing, you know, and it just happens again and again and again. And if you're lucky, you'll get $20. You know, that's, that's how it feels. That's the experience of it. And I don't see it changing. And so I just, I get frustrated when I see people talking about, you know, how to position yourself for the market when positioning yourself for the market is basically, you know, sit in the chair and hit the button. And and obviously it's not that simple, but there are so many, not just qualified, but overqualified people for so few positions. You know, people, people who are on committees say, "I, I feel terrible that I have to cut people who are great because we just don't have the room. Until that changes, we need to make a place at the table for people who are not privileged in that system in whatever way. But to end on a more positive note, many folks did talk about the support they gave and received from friends and colleagues who were going through the exact same thing that they were. And, you know, we say it like, oh, yeah, don't take it personally. But when you're going through the moment, you can't help but take it personally because you've invested so much of your time and effort and energy into the application materials and then preparing for the interview that it's hard not to take it personally. If you're feeling like that, call a friend because I can't tell you the number of times I've called on friends and they've sort of helped me recenter and 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 manage, you know, those feelings. The, the job market can be strenuous on both physical and mental health. I think that one of the things that I would say is as best as you can find a network of people who are going to be supportive of you, who are going to to, to be able to say things that you need to hear in order to to keep going. I'm, I'm incredibly lucky that I have a really strong network of colleagues and friends who who reach out when they know that I'm I'm finding it a bit harder and who give me advice and feedback, but also just let me know that they've been there, that they understand it, that it's tough. The phrase, it's not you, actually is one which is getting me through a lot at the moment. The the fact that you were not the person they were looking for is not a reflection on you. Mark also added that being open about our processes and failures is so important for normalizing rejection and the experiences that we're all going through. It requires us being a little bit more open about how we're feeling and how we're doing about it. That's partially self-care and it's partially also some sort of pastoral care I can give to colleagues as well who are going through the same process so that they recognize that they're not alone. Because I think a lot lot of the stories that I've heard from people face to face is that they often feel like they're alone in this process, that everybody else is off getting jobs and doing well and getting interviews, et cetera. But, But I do think that we need to, as academics, start being a little more open and and not feeling like we have to hide the difficulties that we have with it and the struggles that we have with it. So what do we do about the increasing labor and precarity of securing a tenure-track job or in creating a stable career in academia? In the next segment, we're going to go even further into a discussion of solutions and advice. What can job candidates do to manage the anxiety, pressure, and labor of the market? And what can administration, tenured faculty, and SCMS do to address the structural issues of job market inequality and precarity? So really powerful segment there, Stephanie. Thanks so much for taking time to put that together. You know, it's nice to l- sit back and listen to that kind of stuff when I'm just, you know, here in my country house and massaging my neck goiter. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, very. That's that's what we do. Yeah, <laughs> we're having some of that quality time. Thank you, Lena Dunham. 
such a great, great segment. And it's really nice to hear from um, multiple people with different kinds of perspectives. And it's such a difficult state of affairs. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of um, one of the things that Bruce Brazel said in the last episode where, where we were talking about precarity, which is obviously deeply intertwined with this, um, is that despite the fact that we're generally pretty thoughtful, uh, self-aware folks, supposedly, at least we like to congratulate ourselves for that, and we are trained to think about larger social systems, but it is so easy to attribute these employment struggles to individual failures while just not dealing with the structural conditions that are that not only produce them, but are actually, to some degree, designed to produce them. It's difficult to get your brain outside of that and to try to see these as larger forces that you're facing. And it's also the notion of traditional insecurities uh, in us of uh, feeling like, you know, somehow I am at, at fault for this. And one thing Stephanie mentioned, you know, when we chatted with her along the way, putting this together, every person said, and she joked she could have put together a montage of this, uh, don't beat yourself up, don't beat yourself up, don't beat yourself mm -hmm. up. And that's, I think, a really important takeaway, too. Especially when, you know, all of the mechanisms of self-discipline and self-policing are all about beating yourself up. Right. Well, and we said that, you know, there will be a second segment in this, as she mentioned, and this is going to cover, I don't know if solutions is uh, the right word, but advice and what you can do about it if you're on the job market, what you can do about it if you're on a search committee. So we will have part two to this in our next episode. It promises to be uh, a really terrific contribution to this conversation. Yeah, and thank you, Stephanie, for putting in so much work um, to put together such a great segment. And now we get to to beat up on um, not a person, but but a bad object. Right, exactly, and bad arguments. Uh, so I talked to Phelan Parker. He is an assistant professor at University of St. Michael's College uh, in the University of Toronto, and he's got an article in Cinema Journal about Roger Ebert and the video games as art debate. So, and I had a lot of fun talking to him about this, and especially this ties in a little bit with my own work. I'm working on a book project about basically cultural taste and, and valuations of American and British television. So this idea of arguments about what is art, what is good art, bad art, those are right in my wheelhouse. So I had a great time chatting with him. This is a good conversation. Let's give it a listen. Phelan Parker is Assistant Professor of Book and Media Studies at the University of St. Michael's College in the University of Toronto. He's an interdisciplinary scholar of media and culture, specializing in digital media, games, and film. His current research, supported by an SSHRC Insight Development Grant, explores the production, distribution, and reception of independent digital games with a particular focus on the role of intermediary actors like curators, critics, and community organizers in the cultural ecosystem of the game industry. And he is co-editing a book called Beyond the Sea, Critical Perspectives on Bioshock, an anthology of essays on the influential game series. Outside of his academic work, he is co-founder of the Toronto Outdoor Picture Show, the not-for-profit organization that produces film screenings in parks across the city, including the popular Christy Pitts Film Festival. Thanks so much for joining Academia, Phelan. Happy to be here. 
And we're talking about your Cinema Journal article in the uh, spring issue of Cinema Journal, and this is Roger Ebert and the Games as Art Debate. And just a quick summary, it focuses on a period of heated debate sparked in 2005 when film critic Roger Ebert began sharing his belief that video games could never be an art form, especially not a high art form. And the gamer world, let's say, disagreed, and not just the gamer world, but journalists and academics and so forth. So five years of back and forth ensued um, until Eber finally bowed out of the discussion in 2010 that would continue on without him, even after his death in 2013. But as you note in your article, you're not interested in adjudicating this debate yourself and concluding, you know, video games are an art or not. You're instead interested in the terms of cultural legitimation on the table with this debate. And as you write, quote, my concern here is not with formal theories of art and aesthetics, but with how the idea of art is mobilized in everyday colloquial discourse. So I want to dig into that. And what I find most intriguing, I think, of everything in your account is the idea that, you know, both sides, of course, are presenting their opposing arguments. Video games can be art. Video games can't be art. But even as both sides are presenting these opposing arguments, um, they're drawing from the very same well of assumptions about what defines art. And you write in your article, on all sides of this frustrating cyclical debate, participants are motivated by deeply held beliefs about art and the rhetorical strategies employed on both sides of the games as art debate collectively reflect a set of dominant aesthetic concerns. This tacit aesthetic consensus and the socially accepted language used to describe it is mobilized in different ways by different people for different reasons, but is rooted in a specific cultural history. So I'm wondering if you could uh, summarize for our listeners those dominant concerns and how they got framed differently by the two debating sides. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think one one of my central arguments with this paper is that Ebert's involvement in this debate really set the terms and stakes for cultural legitimacy, at least for for this period in in the history of sort of popular discourse on video games. And so, I think that a lot of the a lot of the responses to Ebert are really taking his underlying assumptions at face value in a sense, not all, but many of them are. Mm. And so we get this version of, again, this popular version of art basically that has very little to do necessarily with formal art world definitions of art. As, as you say, is much, is much more kind of colloquial everyday. Uh, it's used in a much more colloquial way. And so I think that a lot of the features are, that there's a quote that I, from a game critic named Jim Preston where I, I think he describes the dominant understanding of art as something like a, a weird combination of romanticism and rock and roll. <laughs> and we sort of get this, it's, it's this post-romantic notion of art that has a lot to do with personal expression, personal style. Um, authorship is very important in this definition, right? The sort of the, the, the actual figure of the artist. And what I think what's important here is that this is a historically contingent definition of art, right? This is, this is not sort of some kind of transcendental thing. This is what might be described as an aesthetic regime that some people would argue only really prevailed recently, sort of in the wake of the Enlightenment and in the wake of Romanticism. And so, again, it's it, there's personal expression, distinctive style, and, and of course, I think emotional impact is something that's really strongly emphasized in a lot of this. You know, one of the sort of cliches of the games as art debate is the idea of, like, can a game make you cry? You know, as if that's the sort of threshold between popular culture and art is whether it can have that kind of emotional impact. And again, I think what's important here is that Ebert lays all of that out in his critiques of game, in, in his sort of arguments against games as art, which are pretty flimsy generally. But the people who are up in arms trying to like back on Ebert take up all those, many of those same things, right? So if Ebert says like, oh, like games, games don't have author figures because they're interactive, 
people then respond either by finding author figures in games and identifying and sort of and saying, no, we in fact, we actually do have author figures or finding some other rationale to sort of justify games according to that criterion for art, right? And so again, th- this is why I sort of make the argument that they, they share a lot of underlying kind of tacit consensus about what art is, again, which is quite distant from what we might call the art world with a capital A. And as you know, there's such a fascinating combination then of arguments about emotion and arguments about intellectual definitions. And that's such an intriguing back and forth, and especially for people who are the the sort of gamers who are deeply connected and invested in gaming as something so important in their lives and feel quite strongly then of of trying to make this argument then that they want to also draw from intellectual definitions to feel like they have a certain amount of cultural high ground there too. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the things I talk about is sort of strategies of alignment, right? And this is one of the, one of the, in, in, in all, in any process of cultural legitimation, alignment is a dominant strategy and basically saying like, look, we are like this other thing that is already considered legitimate art, right? And, and finding those commonalities. And sometimes that also involves, as you say, sort of an appeal to authority, right? An appeal to like, you know, this is the Citizen Kane of games, or this is, you know, this, this, this person is like the Picasso of game design or whatever. As, as much as it's easy to sort of chuckle at those as academics, like that carries weight in popular discourse sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it carries weight to, to, to draw that comparison, just as on the sort of opposition side of things, on, on Ebert's side of things, it carries weight for him to make those comparisons negatively, right? For him to say like, sure Warhol would consider video games art he'd put them in a glass case and label it video game by by Warhol or whatever he's sort of he's leveraging these you know iconic celebrity figures within the art world to draw a negative comparison to sort of shine the wrong kind of light on video games well, I think one of the points I find most intriguing in, in all of your the kind of points that are going back and forth is the one that surrounds interactivity and player agency. And especially, as you know, Ebert's very invested in the notion of authorship. And he contends that you don't really have this sort of t- true, pure notion of authorship if the player is going to get to decide the course of, of the narrative. And as you know, that's kind of the most medium-specific, even the most contentious points of the debate. And it seems like the one that could be you know, most challenging to traditional definitions of art or have the possibility of expanding them. It didn't necessarily do so. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that debate around interactivity, nonlinearity, player agency, um, and why that still gets pulled back into these traditional definitions of art. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, interactivity is all, it's strongly associated with video games. And insofar as video games are understood to have any kind of medium specificity, it's usually, people usually point to their interactivity, right? And or, or, or their nonlinearity, which is closely linked, obviously, the idea that you know, two different people can play through a game and have different experiences or somehow direct the outcome. And of course, the degree of interactivity varies widely in video games, right? There are video games that are extremely linear, that basically are exactly the same no matter who plays them. And there are video games that are wildly, non, totally procedurally generated and, and, and open-ended. Um, but for Ebert, of course, Ebert dealing with this not particularly well-rounded understanding of the medium, he sees it interactivity as this, as, as rendering authorship impossible, basically. This idea that like, no, like as, as soon as you're introducing someone else into the process, there, there's, there can't be a singular creative voice. And of course, for Ebert, who's a classic kind of pop auteurist, there has to be that singular creative voice. On the other side of things, of course, the sort of the gamers, the sort of, you know, angry mob responding to Roger Ebert 
often use that same point, right? They use that same feature of games to, again, develop a medium specificity argument, right? Which is sort of in some ways different from the alignment arguments that I mentioned a moment ago, because it's all about differentiating games from other media based on their interactivity, based on the sort of simulation capacities, and they're sort of turning a liability into an asset discursively, right? And so they'll say, you know, Planescape Torment or Journey or whatever is these are stories that could never have been told as a movie or a novel or a poem. And what what both sides of this sort of elide, and I think I, I reference this in, in the article, is of course there's a long history of interactivity in art, right? In all sorts of different contexts. Even if we just think about the 20th century and sort of the aesthetic upheavals in the sort of official art world, you know, scholars like Celia Pierce and John Sharp and others have, have, have kind of drawn these parallels to movements like Dadaism or Fluxus or more recently the idea of relational aesthetics where, you know, th these are sort of art movements or art forms that are hugely invested in the idea that the viewer or the spectator is actually a participant in the artwork, right? So this is the, the weird thing, again, about this sort of popular debate is that this is kind of a non-issue in the art world, right? The idea of art being interactive is actually not all that controversial, at least in certain sectors of the art world. But in, in the popular discourse, it, it, it's, it's a crucial sort of battleground for, for this legitimation debate. Well, and you alluded to a key point of another key point of the debate there that Ebert hadn't really played these games. And so he's passing judgments and making these assumptions. And that seemed to be something that especially and rightfully so set off a lot of gamers that he's making these assumptions about here's what it is, what it isn't. And he hadn't actually played these games and especially not to the extent that many gamers had. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and, and none, none of the stuff that I've written is really supposed to be a slight on Ebert or even necessarily a disagreement with Ebert's overarching claim that video games are kind of bad because a lot of video games are kind of bad. Um, but yeah, I think that, that Ebert's shooting from the hip, I think, in this in this debate, much as are the sort of gamers who are sort of very, it's this very reactionary kind of rhetoric that's being used. And I think that the idea that Ebert is this, clueless outsider to gaming culture is really important to, again, the sort of like negative self-definition of gamers in this debate, right? This idea that like, oh, it's it's the olds coming in to sort of ruin our fun. And like this guy's associated with this, you know, and, and then they'll talk about how like like film is a dead medium now, right? Or like like video games make so much more money than, than the film industry now and, and all these sorts of, again, flimsy arguments, but is very important to the way that the debate plays out that Ebert is perceived to be at best an, a sort of amateur in, in this area, right? But I can't really speak to Ebert, the real actual person, so much as Ebert, the specter who is invoked in this debate. And that Ebert, the sort of ima imagined Ebert, is this, yeah, just no, has no idea what he's talking about and deserves to be, you know, crudely and, and, and viciously reprimanded for, for daring to criticize games. It's interesting then how much he does become the the flashpoint, the vortex for this. And as you know, even after he first of all pulls himself out of the debate in 2010, says I'm done. And then, of course, even after he, he passes away, he's still the point. And, and there seems to be a combination of both like him specifically as this figure of, you know, at the height of film criticism, but a certain kind of populist film criticism. And then representing in general, more broadly, this straw man is probably too strong a word, but this kind of general figure of judgment 
so, you know, do you feel like your study also uncovered something about him, about the world of critical discourse he represented as that kind of combination of things about the specific target, but also kind of generally what he represented? Yeah, I think if, if there's one thing about this article that I wish I had more of, it's that, right? Like more, more of a sort of parallel historical analysis of popular film criticism. It's it, it, interestingly, from what I could tell and, and Full, full disclosure, this was part of my dissertation. So the original version of this chapter that turned into the article was written nearly five years ago at this point. And so I haven't I haven't necessarily kept up on, on the research in this area. But from what I can tell, there isn't actually a lot of, of sort of academic film studies literature on Roger Ebert and, or, 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 you know, I, there, there is stuff about popular film criticism more generally. But I, from what I can tell, you know, there's not the book, like the critical analysis of Ebert's legacy or something like that. And I would love to read that book. And I think that would shed light on what he represents in this debate. But as you say, I think it's the fact that in some ways, I think the fact that Ebert was a just so popular, right? I mean, he's, he's such a celebrity figure. He has a huge platform that made his statements important, right? That made his statements important to respond to for a certain, certain kind of gamer, I think. But then the other thing I think is that, as you say, that he, he's a populist film critic, right? Like he's this he's sort of film critic who isn't, you know, he's not a... He's not necessarily a kind of stuffy, exclusively art house or experimental kind of critic who in some ways would be more easily brushed off, right? And more easily dismissed as like, oh, this is just ivory tower nonsense that has nothing to do with what we do. And people do make those kinds of arguments about Roger Ebert. But I think that there's a sense of urgency to respond because of that populist status that he holds, a sort of sense that like, I think for I think for some for some of the people involved in the debate, there's a genuine sense of disappointment that like you don't get this thing that I love, you know. Like I think you are a wonderful film critic or a wonderful sort of celebrity figure, but you don't get this thing that I love, and I need to convince you that you should like this, right? Again, there's this it's this appeal to authority almost, right? It's this appeal to like we need this legitimacy. And one of the things that I think emerges so clearly in this debate is people are so invested in this idea of games being considered a legitimate art form, right? Like this debate wouldn't happen if people just didn't care. There's this deep sort of profound investment involved of emotion and identity in games that is, is very clearly articulated through this debate, I think. Well, and, and speaking to that, the sort of emotional investment, and also then, you know, I'm very intrigued by what you've just raised here, that there hasn't been much exploration of what this critical world has meant to to film history, to cultural history. Your article is also a great defense of, of the value of investigating that kind of discourse around debates of cultural value. Um, and let me read another quote from your article. I contend that the Ebert affair and all its sprawling messiness define the boundaries of public discourse on games and art and can be productively read as an expression of persistent concerns around cultural and aesthetic legitimacy. And the whole article gets at you know, why it matters to investigate those concerns. But from your conclusion in particular, you allude to uh, Gamergate. And I fear, you know, I say the word and the gates of hell open up. But um, again, you write, uh, the false oppression Ebert's comments provoked in gaming enthusiasts and the crude vitriol heaped on him in defense of games prefigure the increasingly aggressive territorialism of hardcore gamers in recent years. So could you expand more on that concluding thought here? How might the um, video game art debate have laid some of the groundwork for Gamergate? And then what does that in turn say about the importance importance of paying attention to this kind of discourse. Yeah, I think that the 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 Ebert stuff kind of plays out the games as art debate sort of plays out in a moment when we don't have the kind of popular discourse or awareness about 
toxic fan cultures, right? They certainly exist. And there are there certainly were, you know, feminist researchers in game studies uh, who, who were deeply, deeply aware of and producing critical research on this sort of boys club effect of gaming. But in terms of the popular press, right, this is it was a different moment. And so the game design debate as covered in game journalism and things like that, or, or even in non-gaming journalism, sort of popular journalism, is largely treated either as like a righteous crusade or as just a whole lot of nonsense, right? Like, why are we wasting our time with this? What you don't get is a critique of like, why are they being so mean to this dude, right? Like, why are they being so mean to Roger Ebert? Like the tenor of this debate is, is as, I, as, as I mentioned in the article, like it's quite crude at times, it's quite aggressive at times. Um, and that's part of why, you know, you mention the games as art debate to any game scholar or game critic now, and then people will just roll their eyes and be like, please, please, no, like, let's not get back into that. But the connection to Gamergate and other sorts of campaigns of harassment and hatred online, I think the, the, the games as art debate, along with the sort of video game violence debate, both of which kind of play out over the course of the 90s into the into the 2000s, um, and of course, continue to play out in various ways. I think in both cases create, again, this sense of defensiveness, right? This sense of like gamers, like serious game enthusiasts as an oppressed minority, essentially, right? An oppressed cultural minority that this hobby is kind of being attacked from the outside and needs to be defended, right? And this is very much the rhetoric that is used as a rhetoric of defending games against the Eberts of the world. I think it very much prefigures the kind of territoriality we see now around sort of diversity and inclusivity in games, right? And, and, and in particular around feminist critiques of gaming culture, right? And of course, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. There, there are many people who've made similar arguments about the sort of historical development of gaming culture as having this sort of false sense of, of oppression, when in fact, they're a very dominant consumer group, right? Like the, the game industry is very much organized around the needs and desires of the sort of stereotypical hardcore gamer to this day, even as we've seen efforts to sort of diversify games and we've seen increasing attention paid to other kinds of games like casual and mobile games that are that are more popular with other demographics, that sort of stereotypical straight white aggressive hardcore gamer is still sort of the ghost in the machine of the game industry. And yeah, so I, th I think that looking to these earlier phases is really interesting and important to sort of set the stage for that because this stuff doesn't come out of nowhere, right? Like if you look at the kinds of things, you know, the kinds of insults that gamers are hurling at someone like Roger Ebert, like crank up the misogynist octane to 10 and then it's the same, it's the same thing that they're hurling at someone like Anita Sarkeesian or Zoe Quinn or any of the other targets of, of Gamergate. When I was done with the article and I was thinking about what do we have next on the table, I was thinking about virtual reality and especially the idea of, you know, that relationship between interactivity and authorship and some who say, well, you don't have true authorship with virtual reality, or at least because we are not directed to look. And I was just thinking, are we going to have to go through this all again with virtual <laughs> reality? I mean, I don't know if that's quite if people and certainly not quite yet. Maybe people don't have the personal investment in virtual reality, but certainly there's a gaming world tied to that. Uh, but I don't know if I have a question there, but I just, yeah. I just thought virtual reality seems like the next stage, and especially for, you know, will that truly be something where we can bring in some new elements to the debate of art and aesthetics? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I think like, like VR kind of emerges in context of video, these popular debates that have already happened around video games, right? And so 
there, I, I wonder if maybe there's a hesitance to like get into it in the same way that sort of we did culturally around video games. But I think that one of the things that is is very clearly part of the VR kind of hype or the sort of ideology of virtual reality is is this idea of, of a synthesis of many art forms, right? The idea mm-hmm. of, of VR as this like immersive, totalizing art form. And I draw the parallel in the article in regards to just games in general, to Eisenstein's theory of cinema or the sort of Wagnerian total work of art, this idea that it's taking from every previous art form and, and combining them into this amazing new thing that exists totally separately from anything that's come before. And that's very much present in the marketing hype and the sort of critical discourse around virtual reality, I think. The notion that virtual reality is an empathy machine, which is this really dominant idea that like virtual reality can like impart to you someone else's experience and create empathy is an idea that's just prevalent in the sort of VR industry and has also been really, I think, validly critiqued by scholars and artists who are operating outside of that commercial context as being like, what is what does empathy even mean in this context, right? What does what does it mean to say that we get to embody someone else's experience very directly? Like is something kind of specious about that idea, right? That, oh, you do a 20-minute VR experience and suddenly you know what it was like to be a slave or something. Um, Robert Yang is a, is, a, is a game developer who's written some really good stuff about that. So if anyone's interested in, in reading more about critical approaches to VR, I would definitely read his work, both critiquing that idea of empathy and also proposing sort of alternative aesthetic models drawing on queer art traditions that are not grounded in the idea of just like, oh, like the perfect simulation of reality that we can immerse ourselves in, but instead kind of dwelling on the glitch and the weirdness of VR. And I mean, like, so far as I'm concerned, that's like the only truly interesting VR experiences I've had, and I haven't had a ton, are the weird ones, right? Are the ones where they're really messing with the medium and messing with the perceptual experience of VR rather than the ones that are just like, okay, I'm in a room and I'm walking around and whatever. So it sounds like we, you know, either have some really fascinating debates up ahead of picking apart all these, you know, the culture tied to VR, or it is the end of all the arts and we're just done here (laughs) and we've finished up and we can all move on. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) All right. Great. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking to us, Phelan. Good luck with your future work. My pleasure. Thank you so much. So, Chris, mm-hmm. have you ever cried playing a video game? I have not cried, although I don't. Well, no, you know, I probably have out of frustration, I bet, out of frustration. Oh, did, yeah, that's true. Does that count? Just not, not long ago, I was playing one. There's, oh, it's like a Winter Olympic sports and um, what's it called? Steep. I think it's called Steep. And mm-hmm. literally, like, the first, very first thing, you ha- you're supposed to jump off. You just jump off of a mountain. And first of all, I couldn't figure out how to jump off the mountain. Finally figured that out. I had to Google, like, how to jump off the mountain. And then mm-hmm. I immediately smash into the side of the mountain again and again and again. And so I tweeted about this, and someone replied and said, well, yeah, that's, that game is, like, notoriously difficult. Like, what the F is the point of in the very first stage you're just going to repeatedly slam into a mountain. It's like, I've got enough problems in my life where I'm like metaphorically being slammed into a mountain. I don't need my games to do that to me. So that I was on the verge of tears. That doesn't sound like, I don't know. Does that, is that art then? <laughs> that, that's like, that's like, I don't know. Is that, um, it's like some kind of like Lars von Trier video right. game or something. Yeah. Right? Just slam you into the mountain. Boom. Masochist boom, art. Boom. Yeah. 
Um, this is a tangent, but it reminds me of one of my favorite clip pairings mm -hmm. um, that I've uh, used in teaching our intro class, talking about um, editing styles and mise-en-scene and stuff. And it involves snow and, and a mountainside. And, and there's this, I don't even remember what, what uh, first-person shooter video game it is that, that has like a scene that's in a, um, a cutscene that's in an avalanche, right? And we have this kind of first-person experience of the snow coming down and being uh, tumbled down the mountain, and it feels super immersive and maybe not identificatory, but certainly engaging. Um, and then looking at the remarkable avalanche scene from Force Majeure, mm. which is all one long static take, um, and it just becomes this really, really fun, fun example to think about in terms of thinking about what what counts as cinematic, what counts as identification. You know, what kinds of how it is that um, these these aesthetic visual decisions end up uh, you know, structuring your relationship to the to the story world and to the to the characters within it. Well, and that also in, in our conversation with Phelan there, the the idea of virtual reality and empathy, I thought was really intriguing. Yeah. That there's this, you, you have this sort of gut level feeling like, oh watching something through someone's eyes, so to speak, will make you empathetic, but that's such a problematic assumption. And incidentally, there are a couple of the, uh, one of the scholars, a couple of the articles that, that Phelan refers to there, we do have links to those posted on our website, which is aka-media.org. I'm going to make it, I know, I need to make a song out of this now. Now that I've got it nailed, I need to make a little jingle out of it. Um, but yeah, if you want to read more about that questioning, this assumption that VR is going to make empathetic people out of all of us, uh, you can check those out on our website. It's a fascinating uh, question. And I know this, this topic is one that you're writing about. It also matches up with some stuff that I'm working on too about about historical drama and, and historical melodrama on TV. And we often don't really question whether or not empathy is a universally good thing, right? We just sort of begin with this presumption that, oh, well, if you, if you have someone else's feelings, then, then that somehow is, is inherently a positive thing. And that might be something that's worth problematizing a little bit, too. Yeah. And also that notion of, did it make you cry? Of course, so many of the art forms throughout history that have made us cry are melodrama and women's forms, and those get scorned and, yeah. and pointed to as something very different than art. So even that notion of what, of even emotion, period, and how that gets judged is, is very complicated. Right. So perhaps we just need to have a very intellectual relationship to our own podcast, which will legitimate it in a different kind of way as, as art. That sounds fun. Yeah, great. <laughs> right. Great. Let's have some, we sh are we going to now like kind of try to have some like alienation effects? <laughs> I think we're actually doing one right now. I think we are. It's, it's happening right before your very ears, oh. listeners. Wait, maybe we should stop then before think things we get should. truly out of control. Um, but you'll hear from us again, of course, next episode. And again, part two of uh, Stephanie Brown's segment on the job market. We'll get some advice from people who have been through it, who have been on search committees and have some good tips for us. So you can look forward to that. And one quick thing also before we say all of our thank yous, uh, we wanted to welcome on board a new producer. Yeah. Uh, Frank, yeah, Frank Mondelli is a PhD student at Stanford in the Department of East Asian Languages and Culture. Um, he researches the technical, social, and political dimensions of assistive technology and disability-related media in Japan, um, and he's eager to dig more into media studies. So welcome on board, Frank. We're really thrilled to have him along with us. Yes, indeed. Nice to have some, some different folks involved and some different perspectives. Good stuff. 
Yep. So you can look for some content coming from Frank uh, anytime now. Acamedia is produced with the generous support of the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. And the communication department at Denison. And quick side note, last month, uh, Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison was able to use funds from the communication department at Denison to cover the cost of transcribing five of our old episodes. Those are now on the episode pages um, for those episodes. And so that will make those shows more accessible and more searchable. So thank you, Denison. Thank you, Bill, for, for doing that. Yes, indeed. And we also want to thank SCMS for uh, helping us to keep the podcast going. And we would be lost without the hard work of our co-conspirators, Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University, Todd Thompson at the University of Texas, Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester, and Stephanie Brown, newly hired at St. Louis University. Yeah, quite a saga uh, as Stephanie Brown is putting together her segments on the job market, and I think she'll talk about that a bit in part two. Mm -hmm. Um, She herself now has uh, experienced the journey. We're also very grateful for all of you who contributed insights and participated in interviews for Stephanie's job segment. And we're also grateful to Phelan Parker for sharing his work and to you, Chris, for uh, taking the time to set up such an interesting conversation with him. It was fun stuff. All right. We'll see you. Uh, watch out for those storms out there. Keep an That's eye on right. those watches and warnings. Keep your phone charged. Charge those batteries. Go Cubs. <laughs>